Hello, and thank you for letting this episode of Bandwidth Coast to Coast invade your cerebellum. I spend more time than most reading and pondering the Romans. In college, I focused more on the Republic, particularly the connection the Founding Fathers had with that ancient civilization. But for the most part, my studies centered around the tragedy of the Republic, famously marked by the stabbing of Julius Caesar and the immortal words, et tu, Brute? Caesar came up at a time when ambition was the currency for glory. The force of the civilization was so grand, one had to create their own immortality, as even the resulting civil wars didn't shake its hold on the region. Caesar, the ever-ambitious Roman, constantly rolled his losses and wins again and again in a rolling game of double or nothing. He created alliances with other self-interested Romans to advance their collective interests, played into their vanity, in the case of Pompey the Great, or greed, in case of Crassus, and even manufactured a genocide of the Gallic people to become a legend. All of it was done with a very skillful mind, playing all levels of Roman culture, society writ large, military, low-ranking public, rich, and political elite. To be honest, I took for granted how this type of individual could emerge from such a time and place. I glazed over how Caesar could have landed himself in such a situation, a situation as to take the helm of a civilization who made the entire Mediterranean Sea a Roman lake. Following this conversation, though, I won't be taking for granted how the culture in which someone exists is the means of which who they become and how they get there. By the time Rome's Republic crescendoed and became the empire, the symphony of the Republic had already transformed a band of misfits in central Italy into a cosmopolitan civilization in control of all of the peninsula, North Africa, Greece, and stood as the most important presence in all lands in which they bordered. How was it then? Then a civilization of subsistence farmers, living on small plots of land, with a part-time conscripted military, and a democracy in an age of blunt edges and monarchs, became a dominant force. Furthermore, what wisdom does this ancient world, run off of the sinew of sapiens and steeds, have for our world of electrons and silicone? In 1787, a conspiracy of Americans met in a Philadelphia statehouse to create a new government. Skipping over a lot of important events and analysis, a group of men walked out with a document framing the new state for the geography. A republic, if we can keep it. Here's something I've been thinking about pretty consistently since this episode. How much of that government was not enumerated from the quill of James Madison, but within the daily lives, raising of children, ethical standards, praise and shame of all those within the territory? In other words, how much of the Constitution was unwritten by the culture within it? For ancient Rome, the very fabric of the Republic carried on inside the life of the family and how that reverberated up into the state. Or, quoting my guest, in ancient Rome, family history and honor mattered more to the functioning of the state than in most other places in the ancient world. For a Roman born during the Republic, they would have grown up praising the direct ancestors and the feats they achieved for the glory and defense of the family and Rome. If they were a male, they would have been raised to live life as a farmer, with many of their daily farm tasks translating directly to war, and then again having those tasks translate directly into public service. This type of culture created quite the breeding ground for exceptional innovation in daily life and conquest. It tied families to one another, the land they lived on, and the community all within. The legions of soldiers drawn from these farming communities 
meant each of those fighting had an intimate tie to what they were fighting to defend, or later on, what they were fighting to enrich with glory and coin. These soldiers had their allegiances to their family, community, then Rome. When I read that concept in my guest's book, it reminded me of unit, core, god, country from A Few Good Men. Soldiers consisting of citizens, instead of dominions or mercenaries, as was typical then, created pushback on what they were willing to fight for, but also increased the number of people willing to fight when necessary. Corruption and nepotism existed, of course, but looking left and right at the time, Romans gained leadership from capability and timing, not from lineage. The Republic was able to survive and thrive because it created an ability for exceptional individuals to rise and defeat the situation at hand, even when that individual is Gaius Julius Caesar, and the situation at hand is an opportunity to transform the very Republic into an entirely different entity, or later on his nephew Octavian, the opportunity to cast that change in cement. Roman life, death, memory, and value, along with all those petty little bureaucratic means of government, existed first and most importantly within the daily lives of people, how they chose to spend their time and what they chose to value, not through the force of those petty little bureaucratic means. The average Roman in the Republic would have been intimately tied to the land they lived on, not only from the worship of their ancestry, but from the very way they lived their lives. Here's something to take away. How different would our present moment be if our citizenry was more tied to the land we lived on? Would we better understand and articulate the effects of a changing air chemistry or the increased difficulties in managing invasive species or the loss of what spent eons evolving to become better and better suited to live on this very spot? Or better yet, how would this tie to the land change the urgency in our politicians and what policies they would promote? Perhaps my musing has a lot more to do with an unwritten constitution of the United States, and how that's changed over time as we've changed along with it. I agreed with the Honorable Felipe Fernandez Armesto in episode 8 of this series, when he proposed the bet with me that in 200 years, there's likely no author more studied when it comes to ancient Rome than Gibbon. Well, I made that bet before knowing my guest today, and I think I'm going to take him up on that. After having read his work and spoke with him, I think that my guest could best Gibbon. Perhaps not in the breadth of the civilization, but in depth and perspective. Now, without any more of my thoughts preceding the main event, here's my interview with the author of the gripping and illuminating book, Killing for the Republic, which really I cannot recommend enough, an associate professor at the King's College, Steel Brand. Enjoy! All right. Well, thank you very much, Steele, for uh, joining me on the podcast. Um, like I mentioned just a few mo- moments ago, I'm really excited to talk with you. Um, I'm quite a geek for ancient Rome, actually. Um, lifelong pursuit of mine. So uh, just so we have it, can you just introduce yourself and then I'm going to go ahead and kick us off? Well, John, it's, uh, it's really great to be invited to the show. I appreciate the invitation. Um, my name is Steele Brand. I am an assistant professor of history at the King's College, where I teach classes on uh, the ancient Mediterranean world, so from the Near East all the way up to medieval Europe. Oh, nice. I didn't realize you went that far. Um, cool. So I have a, a question that I've been doing for the past couple of guests, and I'm, I'm going to make it a theme that I kind of start off everything with, and it's completely outside the realm of Rome. Uh, and that's, what do you do that makes you happy? What do I do 
that makes me happy. Uh, it's, it sounds cheesy, and it's also very Roman in this in the Ciceronian sense. But uh, pursue the good. I, I that's that's important. And order, not order like, hey, I got to have the dishes cleaned, and I need to have uh, all my kids doing what they're supposed to at all points in time. No, not that kind of order. I mean, that kind of order is nice, uh, but when you've got a family, there's lots of chaos. But pursuing the good in the sense of the platonic good uh, and an ordered life in the sense of the ordered soul. I like that very virtue. That's, that's kind of what you're. Yeah. Which around. is what brings me to Rome. Right. I mean, I, I like, so I can't escape it here. Sorry. Uh, I, and I'm fascinated by Rome because you know, highly imperfect society, but they, they have an idea of, of virtue and the good starting with the family and then moving up to the broader Republic. And uh, that, Ever since I was in, in an undergrad, I was captivated by that. Yeah, I can I can relate to that. I think that that's awesome. Uh, I'm actually kind of trying to parse my thoughts together because I'm a little too excited about how much I resonate with that. Uh, I, a lot of what draws me into Rome is a lot of what you just said right there. And it's hard for me not to, myself personally, like when I think about how much I enjoy waking up and seizing the day right away, not to always like relate that back to Rome, you know? Um, I also quite like the idea of changing what your view of productivity is with the seasons. You know how Romans would, right. would try to truncate more and they would base time off of the hours of sunlight and all things like that. Like, Of course, yeah. And all ancient peoples are restricted in ways that are, would just astound us today. You right. Know, we, we, we'd be bewildered. How do I function without my iPhone, right? These are, <laughs> this is what my students don't understand. But there was a time when not only we do, do we not have iPhones and tablets, but we didn't even have light bulbs. Right, right. Or calendars that weren't constantly getting triggered with. Exactly. Yes. And there's a lot of that in the ancient world because they're kind of figuring out how do we, how do we match up, you know, lunar cycles and solar cycles and uh, with the seasons. Yeah. yeah and, and also like, how do we deal with this new thing of agriculture? Right. And which is, which is also really interesting. Right. Right. Yeah. And I mean, Rome itself goes through several calendars. We're not entirely certain when the earliest one is, but I mean, right from the beginning, they sort of set their tone. Supposedly, it's their second king, a dude by the name of, of Numa. And he is supposedly the author of the first calendar. It's shorter than what ends up becoming the kind of standard Republican calendar. But it's supposed to sort of regulate everyone's uh, time and bring the people together as a, a growing city state, uh, sort of regulate when people farm, regulate when they vote for people that are going to you know, serve the Republic, and then they're, when they're going to march off to war, and then when they're going to come home and be reintegrated from war back into being citizens and, and fathers and farmers. Yeah, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask one more question before we kind of go deeper into that, but the reintegration into society after war and the rituals surrounding that, um, I really found compelling. So I, I, I had a book that I was reading um, beforehand and when we were kind of emailing, corresponding, going back and forth. Um, and I, I ended up uh, buying your book and, and starting to dive into it. And before I knew it, I was just like completely captivated and enthralled. And I tried to sprint through as much of it as I could um, and in presence for this. And I thought just the stark difference between how war, agriculture, culture, in general, as far as the family and all of that kind of wove together in ancient Rome, um, really blew my mind. Um, and I want to get into that. But before we, we kind of go there, I want to ask you one more question. And that's what sparked your interest in Rome? Because so I found out about you from a complete serendipity. 
um, where Spotify's algorithm served me up uh, the ancient Greece uh, declassified podcast of which I saw this name that sounded like a Bond villain, which is yours. <laughs> oh, I like that. I've never heard Bond villain before. I'll, I'll take that one. Yeah. But I want to be, be Drax. My, my plan is, is, is the, most, the most gargantuan of all of them. You know, take over the world by, from space. Yeah, so that makes I'll, sense. I'll take that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some kind of giant steel structure to keep it on Bond thing. <laughs> there you go. I like it. I yeah, like space it. age steel. Um, yeah. And, and I, I was like, honestly, it was your name that like first got me to click into it. And I saw Rome and I saw Rome culture. And to me, as somebody who really has dived into Rome for, I mean, as long as I can think of reading, um, it, it, the culture of Rome is something that always kind of seems to me that gets to it from like an angle. It's I, I, before your work, which is why I've, I've been finding it so enthralling is most of the things that I've read have all been like, okay, so the, here's the events, here's the people, here's how those people kind of came up, you know, here's the kind of uh, tensions that kind of boiled over. Um, like for, for particular, I, I study a lot of the uh, tipping point of the Republic into the empire and kind of mm-hmm. the, how ambition as a cultural paradigm brought them into, you know, what the empire ended up becoming and kind of the jockeying of personalities that that generation brought of like, you know, the, the Julius right. Caesar generation um, and, and late Pompey and all that really fascinated me. Um, and your work just kind of centers on it. So what, what sparked your interest in Roman to begin with and, and kind of how did you make it as a lifelong pursuit? Well, when I was in college, I think I, my impression was that I was going to study early America. And you probably get that sense if, if you've read the book, Killing for the Republic, because there's a, there are a lot of references to why Rome has been so important to Americans. And that's intentional because it, that Rome is particularly relevant. Um, and then I took sort of on a whim, I was taking Latin. I decided to take classes on ancient Greece and Rome through a, uh, a stupendous professor, um, Christoph Conrad. And he's, he's, he's a scholar. He's amazing. And he was very animated in his lectures. And I remember thinking when I took the Roman Republic class, uh, these stories cannot possibly uh, be true. I mean, they were better than, they were better than fiction. Uh, I mean, I'm a big Tolkien fan. There's lots of virtue and epic battles and tragedy and defeat in Tolkien. But when I read the Roman Republic and I read the Roman historians, particularly Livy um, and Polybius, uh, sure, they sort of like to talk about how great people were and they have a really high standard for what Romans are. But they also would critique Romans when they failed to meet those standards. And so you have the sense that Rome is supposed to be a republic of virtue. Uh, sometimes they fail in that, but uh, it's not just about pure honor and it's not just about uh, excelling. It's about practicing the good. And I just, I found that absolutely um, bewitching. I, I wanted to uh, learn more about it and I wanted to be inspired by it. And this is what I'm always telling my students. Don't study what makes you angry. Don't study uh, uh, something so you can solve the world's problems. No, no. Study what inspires you. When you read about history, you, or when you're reading about political science, you need to uh, look at uh, the things that try to show you how you can be a better person. And uh, I certainly found that with uh, ancient Rome. That's great. It's very Socratic of you too, to kind of follow your curiosity and let wisdom uh, come from it. Um, I like that a lot. I, I, when I was in uh, college, I, I had a professor named John Shields 
Um, and he wrote this book. I wanted to plug it with you real quick. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's called the, the American Aeneas classical oranges of the American self. Okay. I feel, I feel like I've heard of it. Yes. Um, anyways, so, uh, I, you know, obviously had like a, a amateur, uh, interest in Rome. And then I had uh, professor Shields, um, as a professor and I had no idea the interwoven connections between and intentional connections between the founding of, you know, the U S and Rome itself and the Roman Republic and kind of diving into your um, book and, and kind of how you set it up is by exploring that, which I thought was really great. Um, and not just exploring it in the sense of um, why did they do it? But in the sense of uh, what is that, what, what is something that we should take from it today? Uh, and I thought that that was really great, is it, particularly when he talked about the connection to the, the soil and the, and the differences between a citizen soldier and a soldier citizen, in which we kind of have the paradigm today. Um, and I wanted to ask you, so uh, myself, I come from a background of an army family. Um, so mm-hmm. I'm, I haven't been served in the military or anything like that, but kind of going back really as many generations as I can see, uh, my grandfathers and all the sides of the family tree were in one military branch or another. Um, and what really stuck out to me was this kind of acceptance of a, how you put it, Rome had a citizen soldier. So you were a citizen first and a farmer, you know, along with that citizen and right. a soldier afterwards. Um, and that when you were going through, and I think shortly after you defended your PhD thesis, you wanted to experience what it was like to have this type of soldiering yourself. So you went and joined uh, into the army uh, yourself and kind of went and got experience therein. Um, so I, I feel like this is the question that only really you could answer, uh, which is, so from my own personal experiences with my family, I understand the effects of PTSD and kind of those experiences and then coming back and trying to reintegrate into society and things like that. So what I wanted to ask you was, you know, you feel free to touch upon your own experiences, but really in the, in the Roman Republic, you were a citizen and then a soldier and the culture supported you in such a way where today our soldiers are professionals and they're soldiers first and then citizens second in the way that you, you distinguish the two of those, which I thought was really quite apt. And it made me reflect a lot of my own life. And I was wondering if you can kind of expand on that and the, the cultural setting, particularly some of the rituals and activities when soldiers would come back from war and, and kind of, I think you, you expressed it as a cleansing of the sorts of kind of the, the horrors that they had to do and kind of conduct. Right. So, You've got a couple of really strong examples in Aristotle, Polybius, the ancient political thinkers and ancient historian Xenophon. They like to look at examples like Sparta and Athens and Thebes and Crete, et cetera. And Polybius is able to do this with Rome as well. And then he'll be followed by Cicero. And they talk about the different ways that republics um, can arrange themselves and arrange their citizens. And in Sparta, that's sort of one example. And it's a, it's a praised, uh, a highly praised example from the ancient world. In Sparta, you take soldiers out of their families, you put them in a, a military mess system, and then uh, they train to fight full time. And they enslave a large portion of their uh, the the neighboring population, and they make them what are called helots. And so, uh, Spartans are citizens. They have a really they have a narrower 
and all ancient republics have a narrower citizen base than today. But uh, I don't think that means they're not republics. It just means that they're different than a modern republic in a lot of ways. But in Sparta, you had a really narrow citizen body, and then you had soldier citizens whose primary job is to train and to fight. But there's a very different model in Athens, and it works very well in Rome, and that's that you make uh, your uh, your citizens the part-time soldiers. And really, I think if we're going to look at Rome, where you have to start is you have to start with uh, the father and the mother. And we've got all of these examples from very early Roman history of strong mothers and fathers in the Roman Republic. Now, how true are, are these examples? You've got um, you've got the, the most famous. Uh, her name is Volumnia in Plutarch, but uh, she's Veturia in Livy. Is the mother of Coriolanus? Of course, this is a famous Shakespeare play, and she basically saves the Republic when no one else can do this because she convinces her son, who's about to invade. Rome because he's angry because he's been exiled in a political squabble. Uh, she convinces him that what he's doing is is wrong and it, it isn't it isn't virtuous. And she would be shamed, and he would be not only attacking her but attacking her uh, his homeland. And so this is a really good model of a strong mother. You've got strong fathers as well. Uh, the, one of the the best examples is Brutus, who ends up uh, even he has to sacrifice his own sons who partake in uh, uh, an early rebellion right after the republic gets started. But he has another son that survives, and this becomes. Uh, one of the most important uh, uh, families that lingers sort of throughout history and supposedly for others, the last Brutus that assassinates um, Caesar. But we've got lots of examples of good fathers and good mothers, and it's this strong family bond where the Republic really begins. And the idea is that a father, and Cato writes about this, Cato the Elder, he wrote about agriculture, but he also wrote about, or, or at least we have written about him by Plutarch, how he trained his son. And he Teach, he teaches his own son how to read. He said, I'm not going to hire people out to do this. I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to teach my son how to throw javelins. I'm going to teach him how to use a sword, how to endure cold temperatures, how to swim, how to, how to cross a river. Uh, why does he do all of these things? Because he's training his son to be uh, a good father himself and a good citizen, but also how to be a soldier. So right there on the family farm, well, amidst all the hard work of the agricultural cycle, planting the winter wheat in October, waiting for it to uh, germinate, uh, and then it comes up and it just sort of, it's, it's, uh, it's just a little, a little bit green over winter. And then it, uh, it, it comes up and it, it flourishes in the early spring months. And then that's when the men go off to war. They're doing all of this, but the fathers and the mothers are also supposed, supposed to be teaching uh, these young men how to be uh, good citizens as well. And there are really, really strong reminders in the household. In the household, there eventually is this, uh, they, they come up with this idea of making a waxen bust, and we're not entirely certain when they do it, of people's faces, of their of famous ancestors' faces. And so you do this of your father, probably when he's middle-aged. And they take the waxen bust and they put it in a, a little cupboard. And that's a reminder that your ancestors are looking over you. Your father who has died is looking over you, or your grandfather. And the hearth is a sacred place for the family, but it's also a reminder of how to be like your illustrious ancestors. And the Romans are amazing at political and military adaptation, but they're also really conservative. Uh, and they also, they follow something called most maiorum, which is basically the way of the ancestors, our way of doing things, the way things are done. And that's this conservative strain that says we have to honor uh, what has been built by those who've come before us. So all of these things come in right from the beginning in the household. And really what you have is kind of a little kingdom with the father and the mother ruling and mothers are, have, 
I think, have a stronger presence in the Roman family than you see as much in Greek literature. And this is really important. You have a number of famous um, uh, Roman women right from the very beginning, and that's going to be a strong legacy throughout the Republic. But then, of course, you have the, what's called the paterfamilias. This is uh, the, the head of the household, the, the father. And uh, that's the start. Then out of that, then you have uh, these boys who grow up and they become citizens and they're taught to revere uh, a old age. They're taught to revere sacrifice and public service. Uh, and uh, they see it every day with a, a trophy next to the hearth or next to that cupboard ha that has a wax and bust. Um, they uh, are going to, the first time they go off to war, they partake in ceremonies where they take the weapons out of storage. They have uh, already elected who the consuls will be. The consuls will, the, the consuls are the annually elected uh, heads of state and the commanders of the army. And then these, uh, these men will levy an army. They'll take those weapons out of storage. Then they'll go off on campaign. And, uh, you know, you can train guys how to march. You can train guys how to, um, you can participate, have them participate in the voting, you know, as, as early as, uh, as early as allowed. But when it, when <laughs> to get that military experience as a citizen soldier, a lot of it's just training, uh, uh, in the battle itself. And they put the youngest men right in the front and, uh, the older men are the, 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 the ones that are slightly older veterans, they're right behind them to sort of push them on and encourage them. Uh, and this is how they all learn, uh, to, uh, to uh, serve the Republic in a very, very serious way, a, a potentially fatal way. Um, I mean, I could go into so many more details about this, but we'll sort of wrap it up here with saying, so they go on campaign, at least in the early years of the Republic. It's about every year. You have, uh, it's, a, it's a sort of um, doggy dog world where everyone's trying to kill destroy and conquer your neighbors. And uh, every year they're going out on these annual campaigns. And so then when they come home, they come home about the time that they need to plant that winter wheat in October. And so then they go through a ritual cleansing process. It's pretty, we're pretty clear. They also sacrifice, it's called the October horse. They, they sacrifice an animal uh, as basically, it's kind of like an expiation of all the blood that has been spilled over the course of the campaign. And they're saying, okay, now you're a citizen again, because you've done this really destructive thing in serving the Republic and killing people and sacking cities. And sometimes they do horrible things in these wars, but it's kind of like this idea that now you have to return and you can't be the destroyer. You have to be the creator. You've got to partake in farming the land. You've got to plant that winter wheat before that first freeze comes. It's, it's got to grow up and then it has to, you know, germinate over the winter. Or, uh, it has to grow over the winter. Uh, and you can't do that if you're, you know, bloodstained or you're not there. So this process, this annual process of electing your, your, the consuls, of electing the men who are then going to take you out on campaign, choosing to go on these campaigns by, by voting for the war, and then um, uh, starting that uh, uh, the the campaign, which almost certainly begins in the early years in March, this is probably the first year, the first month of the year, uh, and then concluding in October, is a cycle that habituates all of these uh, youngsters how to be good citizens. So about the time that they're in their 30s and they're able to be elected to their first office, then uh, they have already developed a set of habits that make them not merely good fathers for the future, but also good citizens and then, of course, good soldiers. That's all fascinating. Uh, one of the images that has always kind of come into full color for me when it comes to the ancient room is those wax figureheads because that is like that is such like to me when i first read about that i was blown away because so i was like i had no idea that something like that like back then would that would be something they could even craft let alone something that they would do 
as a habitually part of it and then have like a hearth or a, a dark room where they would go to to kind of see this and kind of like lord over them like the tradition and kind of emotion that must have inspired back then had to be profound um but i also find it it's so interesting to me like um Hemingway in in his book um a movable feast uh he describes kind of the generation after world war one um and kind of what they were like and he, he describes it as shell-shocked which is really what you know the term that they would just kind of blanketly use for these people and uh that were come back from war and, and kind of shaken to the point of um you know just tra- traumatized right and something that resonated with me and it, it was a thought that kept occurring over and over again um which is that you described how the culture was much more for these citizen soldiers to be connected to the soil and connected to their communities and that they accepted that this, these acts of war, while definitely horrific and by today's standards, grossly more horrific than we would imagine today. Like, right. um, I mean, blunt edge on, on bone is, is, is really quite hard to imagine. Right. Um, but that they would do this and then they would come back and everyone, it wasn't like, okay, I'll just stick to Hemingway cause it'll be an easier, like, for an easier analogy to conceptualize than something more modern, but then to kind of say, okay, th- this horrible war happened. It was traumatic for every, all of us in some way. Um, and now you come back and you just, you're accept you're, you're accepted back because of what you did and kind of go on back to being a person almost. Right. Where right. it was a stark contrast back then where they were saying, no, we understand that you did this. We understand that this was horrible. We're not going to shy away from it. In fact, we're going to, cleanse you in some way through another act of, of violence and what you described like the the horse ceremony um and then kind of move on from there it, it seemed very um integrated you know in a way that i, I hadn't thought of before of integrate like, and you, you displayed itself when you uh compare other civilizations at the time that had professional armies or uh standing armies or, or ones that would muster up militias themselves and how different that was because of the integration of all of this. Um, and I'm curious uh, to know, how did that kind of come to be? Like, how, how did this, this acceptance of this culture of war and community? And, and one last thing to kind of posit is you, you describe how um, Romans, were, Romans in the Republic were citizens first of their community, then the Republic, which meant ties to one another, which almost on a legionary sense of where they would get raised and, and mere willingness to fight, but also push back on what they were fighting for was kind of all tied together into this community first. I'm going to defend my land to defend my, my crop yields and my ability to sustain my family. And then it kind of, kind of builds out from there into the whole Republic. Um, and, and I was wondering if you can kind of shed some more light on how that kind of culture came about and, and was it all tied to Rome as a city state kind of getting founded as a, a place of misfits? Right. Well, this is another thing that I think is really interesting about the Roman story. And um, I think it's Cicero in particular that uh, draws attention to this. And he's at the very end of the Republic. In fact, he he dies right at the end. He's a part of the tragedy of the end. And he says that it basically is the first one to sort of utter the phrase, Rome was built in a day. And we don't know a lot of details from the early years of Rome. They start as a monarchy supposedly there are seven kings they're almost certainly more than that or there's at least a compressed timeline uh and it seems like the city state that has 
uh, this, this, this sort of primitive monarchy, which these guys may have only been chiefs, is doing pretty well in the Latin plain there in central Italy. It's a good location. They do have uh, some uh, some cultural ties with the other people there, uh, the other peoples in the region, the Latins. And they sort of seem to make a sort of defensive alliance against some of the, the tribes that are moving down from the mountains and the hills. And the monarchy does well. And you already have an expansion of the, the citizen base, we'll call it this. It's called the Serbian constitution. He's the penultimate king. He's almost certainly historical. To what extent, we're not certain, but the person probably existed. And uh, it seems like he tries to uh, expand the base of citizens so that he can have more soldiers. So you've got more people invested in the community. Uh, this, is, this is the kind of thing that's happening at the same time in other places like in Athens, where they're getting rid of their tyrants and they're now putting in uh, the first step in their democracy. So there are experiments like this. They're sort of popping up everywhere. But there are a couple that do really well. Well, Rome uh, is followed, the, uh, Servius is followed by another king. He's called the Proud. Uh, and the stories related to this guy indicate someone who's very powerful. Uh, he knew how to use the army, but uh, he was a tyrant, a tyrant in the, in the, in the modern sense, and that he's not a good ruler. He's not just. And he'll end up getting expelled. Now, instead of the Republic doing marvelously well, I mean, when Athens democracy begins, um, shortly thereafter, they defeat the Persians. And everyone's thinking, wow, this is, this, uh, there's something to this democracy. It's kind of like the opposite happens with the Roman Republic. When the Republic, when they expel the old king, and they sort of have this conservative revolution, and they change the king with two annually elected uh, consuls, probably called praetors at the time, but we'll just call them consuls. And then they have a senate, they have some assemblies. They actually do badly uh, for about a century. They just kind of survive. Uh, and I think what happens here is they're sort of figuring out the way, uh, how, how to do things. They're figuring out how do we, how do we run this Republic? And they have all, we have lots of, uh, discussion in the ancient sources of arguments between the different people. It's a highly stratified society. You've got uh, aristocrats. We're not sure why they're aristocrats, but we have this nobility we, and they're called the patricians. And then we have the plebs and that's pretty much everyone else. And they're fighting with each other. You've got slave and free. You've got male and female. You've got clients uh, of patrons. Uh, so the wealthy people, probably patricians, but not always. You could have some really wealthy plebeians. So you've got all of these different sections of society, and they're often conflicting with each other. And from 500 to 400, it just seems like the thing isn't going to work. This Republican experiment isn't going to work. But slowly but surely, they start making compromises with each other. They experiment with, what if we have a body of 10 that creates a set of laws, a set of public laws. And the laws, This is these are the first Roman laws that we have. They're called the 12 tables. And they tell us a lot about early Roman society. It's not too glamorous, but a public set of laws seems like we're trying to make government perhaps a little more transparent. It could also be that the aristocracy is trying to use law to strengthen their hold. It's not really clear, but we can see they're trying things. They're experimenting. And over the long run, they start making compromises with each other. These different factions do. And again, you've got stories. So the, one of the most famous stories, and Americans love this story, it's the story of Cincinnatus. He's an aristocrat, kind of like Coriolanus. Uh, he and his son get basically exiled out of the city. And and uh, he is outside the city on a small plot of land and two armies come and invade and it looks like the Republic's done for. 
And everyone says, well, we got to go get uh, Cincinnatus because he's the best general we have. We've got an army surrounded on a hill, another army coming. Uh, we need our best. And so they go get him. And he famously puts down his plow, despite the fact that he has no reason to do so. I mean, he, he could be angry about this, but instead he puts down his plow, comes to the city. He's, it's possible he's elected dictator. We're not certain a dictator is like a temporary ruler that has absolute power, but only for a short period of time or until the crisis ends. So he's, he's given power. He goes out, he defeats both armies and he comes back home and he lays down power so you have this example of someone who in two weeks like rescues the state and then puts that power down and this is why people love to compare george washington to cincinnati because at the end of the revolution he lays down his power and this is what a republic is supposed to be made of a republic is supposed to be made of virtue and you've got these examples at the same time you have all these compromises and it's when we get to the fourth century that something I would, I'll say magical, but something, the compromises start to work and Rome will emerge uh, after a, a series of, of pretty trying moments. The Gauls come at the beginning of uh, the fourth century. They sack the city. They almost take the capital, but the capital holds out. Uh, but you've got uh, a series of new compromises made. Uh, they survive the Gallic sack. And now it's, it doesn't matter if you're patrician or plebeian. By the time we get to around 300, uh, there's this different idea of what it takes to be uh, a, a head of state in Rome, to be in the government, to be one of the people who lead the armies and, and uh, lead the assemblies and pass the laws, uh, you have to have a, a record of public service. And so there's this sort of cult of public service. I'm going to be the man who's done the most for Rome. I will have won the most victories. I will have uh, seen the most uh, concord brought about between all these different orders that are in, in conflict in Rome. So when we get to 300, when the world is sort of shrinking because you've got larger powers that are emerging like Carthage and uh, Alexander has, has uh, uh, had his conquest out uh, in the east. You've got these large kingdoms in the eastern Mediterranean. At that point in time, Rome has emerged as a, 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 a larger power in the center of Italy. And they've worked out a lot of their problems through a long series of laws and compromises. And it's this 200 years of figuring out What's the best way to do things that is marvelous? They start really small and humbly. In fact, <laughs> you mentioned they're a band of misfits. It seems like they're begun by a bunch of bandits and you know, exiles and criminals that come together. But slowly but surely, over the centuries, they come up with a series of compromises. Uh, they come up with a really inclusive idea that if you come into Rome, we'll allow you to become a citizen. And they are more, they're, they're positively... Um, uh, they're, they're, uh, they're ridiculous. They're, they're, they're spendthrifts when it comes to using the citizenship. They don't, they don't hoard it at all. They just give it away uh, compared to other states like Athens or Sparta. And so uh, everyone is, that in, comes into contact with Rome realizes that, okay, maybe they beat me in war and it takes a lot of battles to be able to, uh, to, be able to achieve much of anything in these early years. Uh, but uh, eventually, I have a good chance if I was defeated by Rome and it looks like they're going to be the rising power to, uh, for our community to actually become a group of citizens as well. And so you've got this set up around 300. All the models are there when history starts getting really exciting and all these epic wars to follow. Yeah, uh, man, so much, so much I want to touch upon. I would love, I'm going to only like plug American Revolution one more time and then some other time perhaps I can have you on and we can go just riff on that. Uh, but it's, it's hard even, I'm sure that the, the thought is sparking to people listening. Even in your description of Rome, 
sounding so similar to the founding of, of America, right? Like giving away citizenship. If you come here, no matter what, what your lot was when you came here, you can kind of make something or, or defend and kind of become part of the culture. And the, the parallels between Cincinnatus and George Washington were, were likely intentional back then too, you know, with Cincinnati getting founded from his right. uh, officers and, and whatnot. Um, but it's, if we go back and just think of it in the, the time of the founding, it is, it, it's mind boggling to me that that came to be in the ancient world, that this novel concept of you come here and we'll, we'll, we'll bring you right into the fold of the culture and you can kind of go on, you know, go on through defending the land and, and kind of everything else that comes with being a Roman. Um, it's, it's so fascinating to me that that actually came about. Um, and so it's like two things that I want to kind of ask you while we're hanging on that and kind of the, the founding of it and this, this Republican mindset uh, is, you know, someone asked me once and they said, you know, like, what, what do you think is the most interesting reason why Rome was able to, to conquer and kind of be on the top? And what I said was persistence and innervation. Like when, when, so they would get defeated. And I mean, I think it was like Canny was one of their like first major defeats. Uh, and, and they were, I'm probably mispronouncing it or even misappropriating it, but I know one of their first major defeats was overwhelming. And, you know, the rival civilization, maybe it was the Etruscans or whomever it was, was, was thought that they were, they were done. And they thought, oh, no, there's no way they're coming back. We're going to put down our arms and start rebuilding the, the city walls and kind of go back to work. And then all of a sudden another legion comes and they're not giving up. Uh, and it, it's, it's so like the governmental novelty, but the cultural novelty of that is so fascinating to me and, and how that could have came at a place when, you know, the world was so different is wild. Right. And, and you're right about can I being this, this enormous defeat that it seems like Rome cannot recover from that. Um, and Rome had had a history already by the time we get to the battle of Cannae in 216 of encountering enemies and then enemies just handing them enormous defeats and then them being able to survive this. And this is why I, uh, Polybius, when he's writing about the Roman, uh, the, the Punic Wars the, and the period from basically the beginning of the first Punic War to uh, the third Punic War and then the sack of Corinth in 146, uh, when he's writing about this, he causes that the story uh, uh, of the Punic War, and this is when Carthage uh, sends Hannibal and Hannibal crosses the Alps. He has all these victories and he pauses and he asks, you know, why was, why was Rome able to survive this? And I think the answer is their, is their politics. This is what he says. He says it's their constitution, but for him, a constitution is not um, it, the, a text, right? When, when we think of uh, constitutions, we think of, okay, it's a set of laws or rules. And that's why constitutions these days are enormous because uh, they're not just principles, but they're laws. No, 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 no. For Polybius, the constitution is the very culture that has created uh, the, the, the rules in society uh, that, the, and, uh, and the order that governs them. It's, it's much, much deeper. So his book six goes into all the things that, uh, or at least some examples of things that make Rome so powerful. He talks about their, 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 the, the way we would think of a constitution. So he talks about they have mixed government. So they have two annually elective consuls. They have a senate, which is the advisory body, but it's, it's prestigious. And then they have the assemblies. And by the time we get to Hannibal's day, um, they have uh, several uh, assemblies. They start off probably with one or two, the most famous being, at least in the early years, the century assembly, which is 
probably starts is all the all the men in some sort of military units coming together. That's what's called the centuriate simply from uh, the century. But they've expanded. Why? Because they're adapting. And you're right. They innovate. And uh, so he talks about uh, these, these like three different branches, if you will, of of the government and how they check and they balance each other. And, and Polybius is, is the, he, the innovation of Polybius is he stresses the balance and the check. And, th- and Montesquieu loves this and the American founders love this as well. I mean, this is what John Adams says. Polybius is the summation of republicanism, all republicanism. Well, that's a bold statement. But you can see how Americans were inspired by that as they're studying classical texts as part of their 18th century education. So uh, the, the, the fun thing, though, is that in book six of Polybius, he goes deeper than just what we would think of as outlining the mixed constitution. He talks about the Roman army, how they raise a Roman army. He talks about building a Roman camp. And a Roman camp is really, really important because the Roman camp is basically transferring uh, uh, the Roman Republic to abroad. And it's uh, also transferring Roman engineering abroad. And there's a system. There's a way you do it. It's been established. It works. You do it everywhere. It's hard to build a Roman camp. Polybius talks about how the Greeks will build camps in the fields and they just don't put as much effort into it. Uh, But that's why their camps don't do as well. But Romans are sort of like crazy and obsessive about building their camp on this model and not simply adapting it to, you know, whatever terrain just happens to be there at the moment. And in the camp, they uh, arrange the legions and they arrange the allies. So people who are fighting with Rome, but they're not technically Roman citizens. And then they have in the middle, that's where uh, the commander is. They've got a little miniature forum. That's where they hand out awards. And that's where they hand out punishment. If you fall asleep on duty, you get touched with a cudgel, you have a court martial and you might get stoned to death right there in the camp because because you know, an enemy army could have taken the walls and you didn't do your job uh, or taken the palisade and you didn't do your job. And who does the stoning? All the citizen soldiers that are there. And so it's this little model of the Republic, the power of the consuls, but also uh, the, uh, the, uh, the authority conferring body of the citizen soldiers. And then all the junior officers who are getting examined. If you're uh, one of the lower level officers that are sort of managing the men, they're watching you. And that's going to impact what they think of you and how they talk about you when someday you might want to run to be an idol or a, a, a quaestor or a praetor. And, uh, uh, and so that's the Roman camp. But then he also talks about Roman funerals. And you're thinking, why is Polybius talking about the Roman constitution and talk about Roman funerals? Because this is the culture that makes Rome so impressive. And the Roman funeral is really in, in, incredible. What they would do for um, really famous men who died, uh, uh, particularly if they died like on, on a campaign or died sacrificing themselves for the Republic, but any famous man, they'd take uh, the body in a grand funeral and they'd have kind of like a, it's almost like a military triumph. A military triumph is, is like a parade of sorts it's like a military parade. But in the case of the funeral, they would, they would go through the city and then they would, they would halt and they would uh, give speeches. They would even have actors who would uh, dress like his ancestors and they could pull out those, those busts and they could wear the bus. And so it's like this chorus of his ancestors and the person himself and everyone's talking about them. And all the young men are seeing this and they're thinking, I want to be like Quintus Fabius Maximus, or I want to be like Publius Decius Moose, or I want to be like, you know, Manlius Torquatus or whomever, because they're being praised and they're being honored. And it's that, that cult of, uh, of sacrifice, that cult of civic service that is seen. And this, this culture is what makes the numbers that Rome has uh, 
uh, possible. So, of course, Rome has this ability to raise legion after legion after legion. But they also have uh, the reason they could do that is because their numbers are so huge because they're so inclusive with their citizenship, and every citizen has to be a soldier. They also are going to uh, be pretty, uh, they're going to be pretty fair to those they've defeated. And so it's probably better to be an ally of Rome than an enemy of Rome. And they basically let you do what you want. So long as you pay a war tax, you don't do things that are going to you know, cause disturbances and uh, you send soldiers out to fight for Rome. And most people think that's not too bad. That's not a bad deal, right? Especially if you're in Italy. And uh, I have to stress that it's the quality of that Roman constitutional order and civic culture that creates that very, very important quantity of soldiers, both citizens and allies, which can get defeated on battlefields all the time. And it happens again and again and again. Every century has some major disaster. But what allows them to recover is because they've got that quality that, that fills in the quantity of more soldiers being able to, to defend the Republic. Yeah, that's, that's all fascinating. Um, I, uh, I'm, I'm quite obsessed with what they call in ge uh, geography, the great acceleration, which is essentially like the industrial revolution until now and kind of the explosion of, of everything since then. Um, and about a year ago, I got really into World War I as a kind of a, a, a means of this, this interest of mine. Um, and I, I think it's hard whenever you're reading and you're always going to be, whenever you're really doing anything, you're going to make connections to what you already know and that's going to serve as a false basis. So I, I think until I read your book, I kind of assumed that the reason that Rome was able to raise legion after re legion after legion was because of efficiencies in economy and agriculture and, and things like that, like kind of what we saw in World War I. Like all of a sudden in World War I, the, the death tolls of war were like, everyone was shocked. They're like, oh my God, like this, is, this is insane. Like everything is kind of getting out of hand, um, but we can raise more because we have more people because we've had this, this much more access um, our excess. And, and I thought that that's what it was. Um, and, and I think kind of to hang on the constitution, I, you know, in your writing, you definitely stress how it wasn't a written constitution as much as it was an unwritten constitution. And what your point you just made there of how interwoven culture was in, in this constitution and kind of making everything this closed system that kind of feeds one another and kind of, I, I didn't think about this until just now, which is, the way that you describe someone as, as having a good constitution is almost the analogy for the Republic then, right? Like their constitution extended outside of just what is written down of rules and rights and wrongs, but it is in all aspects of everyday life. Um, and to hang on the, the false dualities that we always kind of build within ourselves, I, I took so much from that into today's world, especially what we're having this like crazy amount of cultural and in, institutional complete shift of how much you know, from studying Rome and, and understanding how much their culture and their constitution and their government were all one thing, you know, there's lessons to be learned for today. And, and I, I thought that was, your, your points on that were quite illuminating. Right. And um, I, I think you, you, you get this sense, and, and this, is a, this is a problem that's sort of plaguing the United States currently, is you know, what is the public life of the spirit that's sort of binding everyone together. There's a lot of strife because people have very different views of what it means to be an American. That's, that's a dangerous place for a republic to be because a republic isn't just laws. 
It's not just institutions. And you really can't separate things like uh, religion and politics in the ways that we think we can. And I think the ancient world differs from us in a, in a lot of ways in, in that sort of thinking, which is why people today are really, really religious about politics, or they're really, really political about religion. And why? Because those things are actually intermeshed. And it, it, it's, hard to, it's hard to separate them. In fact, maybe you can't even separate them. And so uh, when you've got these, these big questions of what does it mean to be American, that's dangerous if people don't have similar answers. And it's also dangerous if you don't have a spirit of compromise. And, uh, and you don't, also, you don't have a spirit of sacrifice. And that's part of what uh, is, 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 that's indicated at the end of the Roman Republic is you don't have this sense of the old Cincinnatus type sacrifice or the sacrifice that they had seen during the Punic Wars when so many, not just young men, not just uh, this, the average citizen soldier, but so many of the senatorial elite had died fighting for the Republic. You've got to have these things, but everyone also has to have a common understanding of what binds us together as a people. And, you know, Eric Vogelin says it's usually only at the end of a republic that people or end of a, uh, a period of, uh, of a state, then people actually understand, can articulate what binds them together. It's kind of when you, when you look at that, you think, oh, my gosh, Plato really understands the polis. Whoa, that's and the polis is the self-destructing. Uh, Cicero really understands the Roman Republic uh, and he's identifying this. But this is at the end of the Republic. And, you know, that's really fascinating. But it's this idea that the myth is there in the first place, not myth in the sense of like Greek gods and lightning bolts and stuff like that. But the ideas that bind people together, the myth that binds a people together. And uh, it, only when that is generally agreed upon and it's believed in, can you have peace and a successful republic. Yeah. The cliche hindsight is 2020, right? Uh, I love reading Cicero the Younger, by the way, like the, his, like th his, which now I'm going to go back and read it with a different line now that you just said that actually, because uh, his just like rigidity to a, a point of fault of wanting to be, you know, expressing Republican virtues and things like that. And the attacks that people go against him and uh, kind of making fun of it and all of that at that time were, were quite interesting. Um, so I, I want to ask you a question. So um, let's just say I'm myself, I'm a tall, strong, able-bodied man, and I'm, I'm born in the Ro Roman Republic. What would my day look like when I'm at six years old, 17, and 27. Guesstimate. I, the only reason I'm doing this is because I want to try to fill a glass of what, expand some more on like this, like what you were saying before of like, my father trains me in arms and he's training me in arms to do what? And, and kind of this encapsulation of how war, farming, and your identity with your own family, and then how that ties to the Republic is all kind of one thing, which is, to be quite honest, like, I think quite a foreign concept for us in a modern society. Right. Okay. So six, 17 and, and 26. Well, I think a lot of, so we sort of already have the, the basis for what, what the home looks like and then what, what the father and the mother would be training their kids to do at the age of six. 
uh, for the most part, these kids are going to still, they're going to be dependent and they're going to be a drain on the family economy. Uh, not necessarily a, a, a bad drain, and, um, and, but this is a subsistence um, agricultural economy. And most of, most of the world is up until 1900, even, even a little bit after that. But um, it certainly is in this case. There's, and there's no sense of making profit in a, in, uh, uh, in a capitalist uh, notion at, at all. Uh, this, this, it's kind of a zero-sum uh, gain uh, economy. So um, a six-year-old is going to probably start uh, participating in the activities of the, uh, of the family farm in the small ways that they can. You know, they can carry you know, logs, they can participate in the hoeing and uh, caring for the fields, but the fields are going to be all-consuming for uh, quite some time. The average farm is around, or the, the lowest acreage, the smallest acreage for a farm for a citizen soldier and not someone that doesn't even meet the property qualification is about um, four acres today. So it's seven Ugera, which are about two thirds of an acre. And that's very small. Will, I, I, didn't, it, I didn't imagine that. It is small. Um, Italy is a fertile place, but they can also farm public land and they can take some of the grain from the public land. This is part of the problem when you get to the end of the Republic is you've got wealthy landowners who have large estates, 500 Ugera, which is enormous. But these wealthy landowners are also gobbling up and using the public land for their own purposes. And so that cuts into that citizen soldier base. So uh, they're going to plant, there are three crops basically for the ancient Mediterranean. There's, we, we think we're guessing around 85% of the diet is wheat, uh, olives and grapes. Uh, grapes are going to be for wine. You could also use them as fruit. Uh, you're going to cook everything in olive oil. Not much meat that the average family is going to have. They would have a little bit, uh, but it's it's those three things are mostly the diet. It's a relatively healthy diet, and uh, the wheat will be. You're going to plant it in October, and that planting is it's hard work, hard hard work. So they're going to have to. They got to sow the fields and then they're going to, and it's going to take them out several passes They've because they've got to turn up the soil. Then they've got to put the seed in the ground. And then uh, they're hopefully going to be creating some soil to seed contact and the process, but they're using a simple plow. This is not the medieval world. They're not using uh, the, uh, the heavy plow and the harrow, which are huge for, it's a major boost in the medieval world when they had this. No, no, this is a, a much smaller plow dri driven by oxen, which are remarkably slow. So it's slow and arduous work. But once you get your seeds in the ground, Hopefully, you're scaring off birds with you know slingshots and whatnot, and you've got uh, it's covered. Then you got to keep out the weeds, and then there's the hoeing. And oh my goodness, hoeing is just constant. And that's I mean it's it's good because it builds up endurance. But this is going to take place a little bit in uh, October, but a lot in the spring. And there there are these ceremonies that they have, religious ceremonies, and you can still see they linger in the Catholic Church and the, the Anglican Church. The ceremonies are still there, like Rogation Sunday, for example, for Anglicans. But it's this time when you're nervous because everything's been planted and you're waiting to see, is the wheat going to come up? Uh, and you, you don't really know how good of a crop you're going to have uh, and just forgetting about storms, but just a crop based on what you've planted until sometime moving into our modern April and May. Uh, but up until that point, you got to hoe. You got to hoe a lot because you got to keep the weeds down. Well, there's going to be a point at which the wheat is going to overtake this. So a, a six-year-old is partaking in all of this to the extent that they can. A 16-year-old 
they're going to be an asset. Their work, they've, there's actually a study, a great book called, I think it's called Rome at War by uh, Rosenstein. And he's actually done a study of, of how uh, the point at which a male or female is actually creating more food than they're draining from the family. So a six-year-old's a drain, but a 16-year-old, they're going to create two, three, maybe even four times as much as they're actually going to consume. They consume a lot more, but their labor is very valuable. So they're going to be doing all the hard work here. They're also at this point in time, a six-year-old's probably, if you're in an elite family in the middle of the Republic, your parents are going to be teaching you uh, uh, about, they're going to be teaching you how to read, they're going to start teaching you how to swim, they're going to teach you how to do these kinds of things, teach you how to work on the farm. Uh, by the time we get to the end of the Republic, if you're wealthy, you can have a tutor. Not many people can have this, maybe a Greek tutor. Um, but a 16 or 17 year old, they're going to be ending the period of where they've done all of these. Uh, their education is kind of coming to its completion. And at this point in time, it's when they're between 16 and 20. This is the first time a young Roman man is going to leave the farm and go on a campaign. And this is big. It's big for a number of reasons. Uh, because that means that farmhand is going to be removed at certain times of the year. And in the middle of the Republic, you actually have uh, life cycles where it's anticipated that a guy's going to be gone. Uh, it could be years at a time for longer campaigns. In the early Republic, you go out, you fight a battle with a neighboring city state, you're always back home for the farm. Well, they changed this to a life cycle. Uh, so for certain men, for periods of their life, and this, the, which the, who the men are actually cycles out as well, that's part of Roman conscription, uh, these men are going to be gone abroad fighting in Spain or Macedonia or in Sicily or southern Gaul. And uh, this is where they go through the, what we've already talked about. They, uh, building a camp for the first time, training as a unit, drilling, marching. And the best thing you can do, and this is what you do in modern basic training today, you don't spend tons of time on the firing range. You spend a lot of time cleaning the barracks, standing in unit, marching around. You do firing range too, but you have to learn order and discipline. And if you can instill order and discipline, then you can teach men how to use uh, the weapons that they're going to have, a, a javelin to hurl, uh, a, a sword used mostly for thrusting, and then the, the, the shield they have, it's kind of a longer oblong shield. And they're going to get their first taste at this at the age, uh, probably around 18 or 19, maybe as early as 17. By the time someone's 26, it's possible that their time as a soldier, if it's during the Second Punic War, they might be on campaign for this entire decade. And um, the, you've got instances where this occurs and people understand that the sacrifice is involved. If they were part of a losing battle that was a great disgrace, they may be sent to exile in Sicily for 10 years. This is what happens to some of the legions after the battles of Trasimene and Cannae when they are uh, horribly defeated. They're sent as exiles. They don't get to see home. And so the, you've got these young men that are gone until the age of 26 or 27. And then it's uh, by this point in time, however, they're veterans. So there, there are three lines in a Roman army. There, there's the front line, and then there's a second line of older men. So the rookies are on the front. The older men are behind them. This is very important because you've got to make sure they don't flee. You've got to push behind them and make sure that they maintain formation. And then there's a third line, and these are the seasoned men. And everyone used to say when it comes down to the triarii or it comes down to the third line, this is when you know it's bad because this is the last line of men, but they're the oldest uh, veterans. 
Uh, but if you are a wealthier person, you're probably going and you've come from a distinguished family or you're ambitious and have the possibility to rise in the ranks. You could become a new man. Then you're going to be thinking about uh, uh, getting into politics. But that doesn't happen until uh, I think it's around the age of 30 or so. And then you can start to climb the ranks. So already by the age of 30, you have people who have, uh, of course, they've gone through, they, they've learned how to be a good farmer. They've learned from their father and mother, if their father and mother are both still living, they've ex probably experienced a number of wars. They're veterans and they're teaching younger men uh, how uh, to perform in wars. And now they're thinking about uh, going on to uh, possibly, if you're in the upper, upper classes, they're thinking about going on and actually being a leader in the Republic. Uh, and that tells you a lot because by the age of 30, you have so much experience and you can't even reach the pinnacle of power until around the age of 39. And that's being a console. Uh, and uh, this whole system, it, it, we know the specifics. It's heavily regulated by the time we get to the second century, but it seems to have been in place more or less uh, for a couple of centuries. And you can see how from the age of six to 16 to 26 or 27, you've got uh, this process of habituation. One more thing I forgot, and this was encouraging to me personally. A young Roman man would probably not have gotten married until his upper 20s. And I remember I desperately wanted to get married. I wanted to have a family, and yet I had not, been, I had not married by the age of 27. And I remember reading that for the first time and thinking, ah, I've still got time. I'm doing okay. Uh, so the, you, they would marry usually women younger than them by about a decade. And they wouldn't start that family probably till their upper 20s. And that's when they could be done with military service and be leading their farms by the time they get to their, their early 30s. That, uh, God, that's so fascinating to me. Like it's, it seems, I, I like how, I like uh, looking at uh, frameworks and kind of architectures or really anything and then seeing what emerges out of that. And, and what you just described of what your life is like growing up, it makes so much sense that what would come out of that is exceptional individuals that could do exceptional things in this, you know, pretty hard to conceptualize time of living in which, like we said, like when you go to war, it's not, you know, holding an M M16, you're, you know, you have a blunt object and you're going against other blunt objects. Um, so as a follow-up kind of question to that, uh, how unique was that at the time period in which they you know this culture existed like in the time period of you know the roman republic in which uh like just another sidebar like i, I think most people's conceptions of the ancient world is that people died awfully early they weren't you know investing you know later in life by the time that you're like i mean even what you just said right now even our modern conception is a lot of times like you're past 30 and it's almost like you're on the back nine right like when then it there <laughs> It's, it's really like, no, 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 now you actually can start, right? Like everything that you needed before here, that was just your, your foundation. And now you kind of get, get to start. So how, how unique was this culture, especially one in which, you know, later in life, you know, you know once you kind of hit peak adulthood or, or kind of really kind of get in firmly into adulthood is when you are, you know, kind of having more of the rights and, and kind of things to go out. Um, how unique was that in the ancient world? So uh, two notes, I'll get to the question of uniqueness, which I'm, I'm glad you asked that um, so I can clarify a couple of things. But first of all, mortality, mortality, my students are always sort of flabbergasted. I tell them about pre-modern mortality. It's, uh, it would sort of shock us today. 
Yeah. I mean, the COVID, the world of COVID in 2020 has helped people understand a little more about what an, what ancient life may have been like, but still nothing in terms of numbers that compares to then. You would expect you've got a 50-50 chance of making it to the age of 12. Uh, you've got a, a 25% chance or a 25% chance of, of dying as an infant. And this kind of mortality continues. So, I mean, Thomas and Martha Jefferson they have a kid about every year and a half or so, and only, I think it's only one maybe survives Thomas Jefferson. And there, I think there are only three that survive into adulthood of their children. So that's still similar to, uh, to the ancient world. It's not like uh, 1950 after the advent of modern medicine, particularly penicillin. Uh, and when we're understanding how bacteria and viruses work. So it, if you're lucky, you know, you'll make it to the age of 12. Now, once you make it to the age of 12, then your life expectancy goes up a lot. Uh, you could make it, make it into, you know, 60, 70 or 80. I mean, we've got uh, Roman commanders who are fighting in their 70s and 80s. But um, you, you're, uh, you could make it to the ripe old age of 50. That's pretty old uh, from birth to, to 50. Uh, we're never surprised when someone dies of old age. Uh, in their in their 40s or 50s, but you can't have people that make it even longer and last uh, up until their their 70s or 80s. Like I said, some of these guys are even fighting. But how unique is Rome itself in this this you know high mortality, high death rate, lo- uh, high infant mortality world? It's unique in the combination of factors. So you do have republics, you have amazing uh, fighters. The Macedonians are probably tougher fighters than the Romans. Uh, because they, they have a really similar circumstance. And I talk about this in chapter, the chapter that I have in the book where the Macedonians fight the Romans, the Battle of Pydna. And uh, they, they fought barbarians on, in, out, out in, the, in, the, in the mountains. They had to fight against the Persians. Uh, they were really, really talented. Uh, they have a system where they figure out how to incorporate uh, the different segments of Macedonian society. They incorporate the Greeks, but their constitution doesn't work as well. The Athenian constitution is similar in many ways, but they're not as gratuitous with their, uh, with their extension of their citizenship. Spartans are remarkably austere when it comes to uh, giving anyone their citizenship. So I think it's all the factors that come together uh, in a world that has a lot of similarity because it's, it's a subsistence farming world. But it's all the factors that come together in Rome, the incorporation of the household, a constitution that's built on compromise uh, and concord uh, and innovation that takes place Indeed, but takes place slowly over centuries. Uh, this, in, this sense of incorporating other people into our state. Roman laws, the uh, Roman roads that extend out, uh, the Roman sense of engineering that extend out first to colonies, but then out to everywhere the Roman army goes. This sort of systematic idea of planting colonies along Roman roads. And what are colonies? Well, Latin colonies are usually a little wealthier. They're with Latin allies that aren't full Romans. Um, they're, they're Latin, but they're allies of the Roman the most important allies of the Romans. Uh, and then you've got little Roman colonies. And what are these little Roman colonies? These are little um, enclaves of Rome out in different places where they have conquered that slowly start to transform 
that countryside. So you're not going to have people saying, everyone that comes into contact with Rome or is under Roman authority, which is very complex, you're not going to have anyone saying, I'm a Roman citizen and that means something if they happen to be under Roman control in the third century. But by the time we get to the first century AD, when someone like, for example, Paul of Tarsus says, I'm a Roman citizen to a Philippi commander, that means a great deal, uh, which is why Paul of Tarsus makes that claim to the, the authorities at Philippi. And that's a very long process of Rome bringing together all these ex- exceptional qualities uh, over the centuries and making it what I would say is uh, certainly the most important empire of the Mediterranean world and probably the world. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, if you couldn't tell, I, I, I think about Rome a lot. And uh, one of the uniquenesses of Rome that I, so I, I, I'm, I dub myself an engineer as well. I, I do software development and I build a lot of random things. Um, and something that I always kind of enjoyed about Roman soldiers, I believe Dan Carlin, his hardcore history was the first time I kind of heard this analysis. And it was that the soldiers were some part engineers and some part soldiers. But now what I'm kind of taking from, from your work is that they were also, you know, before any of those, a citizen. And and by even using the word citizen, what that means is there's a culture around everything that kind of interweaves all of what we do and why we do it. And your explanation in the book of I'll call back to even what you said before, if a Greek camp versus a Roman camp and kind of what they would do, it is is so interesting to me how they would weave all of these, these different things into just kind of what, what you thought your life was like. Right. And then from that, I can understand how all of these like kind of great, you know, ingenious kind of things kind of sprout out of it, even though the fact that they aren't the best, army you know they they definitely lack some cavalry skills as some of their neighbors and 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 then like you know you can see like even carthaginians you know naval presence um and once again cavalry you know like they they kind of always seem to every time they get into a situation lack something and then find a way out of it right i mean this is the the probably the most famous example is uh the first punic war and the punic wars are probably the most uh, the most intense, exciting uh, series of wars in, in the ancient world, right up there with uh, the Persian Wars, right up there with Alexander's conquest. But this is an epic struggle between two rising powers, uh, between this naval uh, thalassocracy, a giant naval empire of Carthage, which has, they hire mercenaries, they, uh, uh, they hire, they have sort of um, they've subjugated the the Libyans and other peoples that they they basically pay to fight for them, which uh, oftentimes makes the the fighters more uh, they're they're actually they have more technical expertise at their craft. If they're a slinger, they're going to be better than any probably anyone in Italy. If they're an archer, they they probably have better skills. They've been hired for these tasks. They also have elephants, which is cool, right? Uh, it's just the first uh, the, the chariot is not a, a a shock weapon. The elephant is a shock weapon. It's the armor of the ancient world uh, and they make excellent use of them. And um, 
you've got uh, this really begins even before the Carthaginians with uh, with Pyrrhus, who brings over elephants and uh, Macedonian phalangites, uh, Macedonian armies using a longer pike, and uh, they defeat Rome twice. <laughs> Rome uh, nonetheless keeps sending legions out in the field, and they figure out how to defeat the elephant, and it takes them a while. And they always know, the Romans always know, their best asset is their heavy infantry. It's, it's the legion. And they're almost always going to be lacking in something and they do uh, they woefully lack uh, cavalry and uh, this this tells in the, in the Punic Wars I mean what uh, Hannibal is able to do to the Roman armies from 218 to 216 is absolutely astounding uh, this is so many people really like the story of Hannibal because he's far more talented than any general Rome offers at that time now, that won't be the case at the end of the Punic Wars because there's a young man who's fought Hannibal two or three times. He's learned from him. He, he figures out how to use his tactics. This is the famous Scipio Africanus. But Scipio Africanus is one general among many that Hannibal has to reckon with. But there's really only one Hannibal. And so this is part of the problem. And that's that system, the quality of the Carthaginian uh, body politic and public life of the spirit does not generate a quantity of commanders and citizens and armies and so if you you've got to give out so many death blows to the roman republic and hannibal does this but he just can't end up winning because of that sense of roman innovation and ironically what ends up winning the last battle of the punic war at the battle of zama it's not the infantry of scipio africanus who's learned to fight as good as hannibal it's actually the allied cavalry that they have stripped away from Carthage. They come back and they hit Hannibal uh, in the rear at the Battle of Zama. And that tells you there that it's that Roman sense of incorporating other peoples into our system, picking the better allies, pulling allies away from uh, our enemies that is going to allow them to win in the long run. Yeah, I'm gonna. I'm intentionally trying to pull myself out of wanting to just stick only to the first and second Punic Wars. Uh, I mean, but the, the the culture. I mean, I, I believe it was Hamilcar, right? That's Hannibal Baraka's father, Hamilcar. Yeah, Hannibal Baraka's father. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like the first Punic War, and then that you know likely probably not wholly true story of Hamilcar and Hannibal going to Spain on a boat and him kind of making Hannibal promise that he's going to always have the Romans as their uh, threat. And the idea of, 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 you know, in Spain and kind of casting Hannibal as a, uh, a God or DD pseudo deity of some sort, and then kind of going through and, and waging war on, on Rome is so fascinating to me. A lot, a lot of which that I find the most fascination in the second Punic war outside of just the pure genius that is Hannibal is like the, the infighting in the Senate of what the hell are we going to do? We keep throwing people out there and they keep getting defeated. Right. Um, and also like, as far as it, just historical figures in general, uh, I, even outside of obviously my pension for Rome, Scipio Africanus is so interesting to me. Uh, and now looking through it through this new lens of culture that you've kind of given me, it, I find it even more interesting because of how much he kind of, he, he exemplified perseverance and virtue of Roman you know, ways, but he grew his hair longer. He had a beard. He, he talked about himself in a more individualistic sense. Um, and all of that kind of is interesting how it almost, in my eyes, in the way that I've chosen to look at it, it almost gives like a glimpse of what's to come. Right. And a lot of people have 
have done this in hindsight, and I don't think that's a, a, a terribly wrong way to look at this. Uh, he, he also claims that he uh, sort of has a, a special relationship with the gods. They speak to him, and he uses that. He's a very non-traditional kind of Roman, and he rises through the ranks a lot faster. He sort of he breaks the, the custom of the time uh, of rising through the ranks uh, faster. He's afforded consular authority basically to go out and deal with Spain because his father and his uncle had died fighting in Spain and no one's willing to go. At least this is the way the story is told. And so he's, uh, he takes that, uh, that upon himself. And he has this amazing campaign that probably shows that he's been watching Hannibal closely. He's, he fought Hannibal when Hannibal had those three great victories. He fought him in at least two of the battles in a skirmish uh, in, in Italy. And then he goes to Spain and he uses these kinds of tactics, it appears, against uh, Hannibal's brother and other Carthaginian armies there at the time. And it's very unorthodox campaign that he has in Spain. But what you can't forget because Scipio Africanus is really unique, is that there are other Roman commanders that are still keeping Hannibal pinned down uh, in Italy. And then there are commanders who are going and fighting an ally of Hannibal out in Macedonia. And they're having to deal with that. There are some that are uh, waging war in Sicily, which has uh, which is in, 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 uh, basically joined the, the Carthaginian cause. An old ally dies, and his grandson takes over and allies himself with uh, the Carthaginians. So they've got to deal with that. And then they're even raiding Africa. They're fighting in Sardinia. It's a world war. I mean, it's, it's, it's truly a world war, uh, at least given the, the understanding of the world at the time. And uh, my favorite example of the, of the Roman commanders is the old Quintus Fabius Maximus. And he's the guy who says, you know, I, I know how we can defeat Hannibal. We've got to stop fighting him. And Romans hate this. <laughs> this is not what you tell young Roman men. Don't fight. Just shadow him. Uh, you know, they're chomping at the bit to get out there. He says, no, you can't do this. But he's got this, this, this very slow, methodical way of thinking about how we can actually hit Hannibal where it hurts. And it, it, it doesn't take for a while, but then it's that battle of Cannae where a, a double-sized uh, Roman and allied army gets like slaughtered, up to 70,000 people killed at the battlefield of Cannae. That makes people think, okay, maybe Fabius is onto something. And they'd heaped criticism upon him. They called him a coward. Um, and he just held the line. And he's happy to heal the wounds. He limits mourning in the city. And he says, here's the strategy that will move us forward. And this he ends up authoring what we now know of as the Fabian strategy of attrition. And again, this is another guy that is compared to George Washington, uh, because uh, a lot of people say this is kind of what Washington's idea is. I just have to survive. I, ha I have to keep an army in the field. And it's a little different, but Fabius' notion is the same. Uh, by fighting a war of attrition, I will keep these Roman armies uh, uh, in the field. I will keep Hannibal at bay and deny him the ability to heap one great battlefield victory after another against us. And it's that innovation, that adaptation, that ability to use different commanders. One who says, I'm going to take your tactics and fire them right back at you. Another one that says, I'm just going to blunt every tactic you have and refuse to allow you to draw me in. And they're just two. There are dozens of other men who distinguish themselves in the Punic Wars Probably none of them as brilliant as Hannibal, but that's Carthage's weakness. They only have one great Hannibal, and Rome has got better. They, they've got all these men willing to use all these talents together as a team against any opponent of Rome. Yeah, and 
And just to, to throw another uh, word you were bringing up, <clears throat> which is compromise, right? Like they were, they were willing to compromise and say, you know, Scipio, you're going to arise the ranks faster than you normally would do, would be because of the situation, you know, uh, attends to it. Um, and, and, you know, one of the great what ifs that I think about sometimes is, I, I don't know, I'm not a historian, so I don't know the exact details, but I know there was a point where Hannibal was mere, some tens of miles away from Rome and, and what would have happened if he attacked the city. Um, I, I'm always curious why he didn't uh, go after Rome and perhaps, it, you know, he really just wanted to to compromise at some point because he knew that, uh, you know, perhaps he was, you know, expecting that the aristocracy in Carthage was kind of kind of lay him out to dry like they did with his father. And, and maybe that was it. But um, that was always curious to me. Um, my favorite story of Hannibal, though, is when once again, it's probably not true. Uh, but when he met Scipio Africanus shortly before uh, Hannibal died. Uh, as an admiral of all things. Uh, and he said, uh, he asked Scipio what his you know, ranking of best uh, generals of all time was. And Hannibal put himself right b- below Alexander and Scipio kind of took a, a little hate to that. And he said, well, I, I defeated you. <laughs> why, why are you putting yourself, you know, above me, you know, in the ranks of Alexander and Hannibal's response was, well, if I would have defeated you, then I would put myself above Alexander. Right, right. Oh, we wish these conversations had happened uh, right. as the stories. I mean, there, there, there's actually there's a movie. I show a couple of clips of of these movies uh, in in my classes, and there's one movie that actually does a pretty good job showing that scene. Almost certainly didn't happen, but we sure wish it happened yes. because it's one of these moments when it would be cool to see the two generals talk before the Battle of Cannae. And then I think the the incident that you're referring to is another conversation they have. Uh, I think it's years after the battle um uh, you know but i think so two things i i'm prone to find uh the story about the oath his father makes uh, I, I i'll buy that one i i don't think we we need to doubt that story supposedly it comes out of uh, the lips of hannibal himself when he's talking to antiochus uh the third so that, that pro I'll, I'll buy that one and then why didn't he sack rome uh, a lot of historians talk about this. Uh, there are good arguments that are made on both sides. But if you ask me, it seems like he has trouble taking cities in general. Hmm. And he has a lot of trouble taking the city of Saguntum in Spain when he's got all the resources of Spain uh, on his side. And he has so much trouble taking some significantly smaller cities uh, in, in Italy itself, he just doesn't have the siege equipment. He doesn't have the, the 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 operational ability to have that kind of patience to besiege the city. I don't think it would have been a wise move. I don't think it would have succeeded. I think he knows that. I think what he's counting on is a strategy that that seems like it's going to work. Huge battlefield victories. He's got three enormous decisive battles and a number of smaller skirmishes by 216. And What he's thinking is two things are going to happen. All of Rome's allies are going to defect and run to Hannibal, and they're going to be happy to be free of uh, Roman dominion. And the second thing that's going to happen is Rome is going to sue for peace, and then we can have humiliating terms heaped upon them, probably get back the islands of Sicily, Sardinia, and Corsica, lost after the First Punic War, and Rome will be reduced to a second or third-rate power in Italy. But... What he discovers is, one, 
the allies are sort of making their own calculus. If the Carthaginians win, is that really going to be better for us? And some say yes. In fact, in the southern Italy, more recently fall under Roman hegemony, uh, hegemony into the Roman Confederation. Southern Italy, he, he wins a number of allies. But the problem is the Latins don't defect. The Etruscans don't defect. The Umbrians don't. Most of Rome's allies say, no, we think we'd rather stick with, with Rome. Uh, they've been pretty decent to us compared to what we think you're going to offer us. So that's his first surprise. And the second surprise is Rome is not interested in any kind of negotiation. Uh, and, you know, if he, if he'd read about the story of Pyrrhus, it's the same thing. Rome does not negotiate with enemies when they're on foreign soil or on home soil and uh, they won't do this. And uh, this is, it's Polybius at the end of book six, he picks up the story after the Battle of Cannae when the delegation returns and he'd offer to release hostages for uh, a pretty reasonable sum. And the Romans said, uh, no, you keep the hostages and we're not going to give you money so that you can raise more men and money. Uh, you're going to have to keep fighting. And Polybius says, uh, we don't know if he knows this for certain, but he certainly is recording uh, Hannibal's sentiment. His spirits fall. And he realizes he's taken on more than he can chew. And he's going to be stuck for the rest of the Second Punic War, not fighting another uh, truly decisive battle that, that yields a great victory. And that war is going to last until 202. So uh, he's, he's just been, he's, he's been not been outgeneraled. Uh, he's been outpoliticked. Wow. That's interesting. I realize I fell in my own trap of the Punic War, but that's quite all right. Um, you know, I think that you made a really good point that I want to highlight, and that's like I don't think there's any doubt that Hannibal is a is an exceptional individual when it comes to the course of history. I mean, obviously, like you can read about Patton, like George S. Patton was like really into Hannibal, and if you read really any major general, they're going to have a period in time that they probably comment on Hannibal because of his just like pure exceptionalism at a, at a point right. in time. Um, but I, I think what is interesting is that you can breed one exceptional individual and it took an exceptional set of circumstances of which he was the descendant of somebody who had already fought in such a war and, you know, was, was literally, I mean, it's almost, he's almost the exact opposite of Caligula in the sense that Hannibal was raised in the military ranks and was respected as one of them would sleep with the soldiers was really took on that kind of life. But that's just one individual where Rome was like, hey, we're going to keep throwing everything at you and we're going to have this culture in which we allow people to take a, a stab at things. Um, and, and so being conscious of your time, I want to ask one question. I, I really wanted to get a question out about the sacking of Roman 390 and the, the woe to the vanquished and, and how that kind of played into the culture because um, when it comes to shockwaves throughout history, that one I actually think has a big uh, place in Western culture in general. But... Um, what I want to ask you is, so given this culture that Rome had of creating exceptional people um, and also this culture that I want to kind of posit in here of which it was culturally appropriating a lot from other cultures. Like, you know, once they kind of brushed up against the Etruscans, they took a lot of their traditions in, in with them, right? Once they kind of went over and, and conquered uh, Alexander's legacy uh, monarchies, you know, they, they all of a sudden there's a rush of Greek culture in there and all of that. Um, and I was wondering, so like this Roman Republicanism and the kind of culture that is Rome that we're, we've been describing this whole time, how did that play in with the, the people that they would either 
start kind of the, the land and territory advance and rush up against and all of a sudden you know some, some of those cultures would, would kind of secede and say like okay you're going to probably conquer us so we're going to come in peacefully as opposed to coming in you know from war means or even you've annexed our territory now from a means of war um how good were the, were the romans at it exporting this culture as much as they were importing culture from those that they were uh, brushing up against? And was it a free flow of culture back and forth that made that all stronger? Yeah. So the famous phrase is Rome having conquered the Greeks, Greeks was conquered by them. And um, there's certainly something to that. And they do, they adopt and adapt just like as in military affairs. They, this is how they win the first Punic war. I neglected to mention this. Uh, The story probably it's it's probably a fantastic version of something that is uh, approximates truth the story is that they get a a carthaginian quinquiram a a carthaginian ship and then they build a ship based on this carthaginian model and then they learn how to sail from that now they don't know how to sail so uh they end up uh, like this is romans right so they've adopted the ship but now they're going to adapt the ship so they adapt these new they build a fleet they adapt the ship by putting a, a giant boarding plank on it and they just fill every ship with tons of marines and they in traditional roman thinking okay what's our best asset our heavy infantry well let's just turn a sea battle into a land battle and so that's what they do and the carthaginians are like what the you know every time they come to contact with these ships they're like what are these things um and then they're gonna lose uh, the carthaginians are the you know, naval masters of the western mediterranean gonna lose battle after battle uh, after or naval battle after naval battle after naval battle because they can't figure out how to defeat the the corvus the the boarding plank and uh, now in the end the the boarding plank is going to do just as much damage to the roman fleet because they're so unwieldy they keep getting caught with their bad captains out uh in open seas they get caught in storms they have whole fleets destroyed more by storms than they do by any carthaginian defeat but that gives you an example but that's just one small example they do adopt a lot of things from uh etruria they they take uh, a lot of people think that Etruscans are basically dominating Rome during a period of the monarchy. Historians argue over those things. It seems instead that Rome, even from its early stages, is adopting aspects of Sabine culture and Etruscan culture and Latin culture. And they love taking this. They're, uh, they've been compared, perhaps unfavorably, to Star Trek's The Borg in the way that they assimilate, uh, they assimilate their biological and technological distinctiveness into their own uh, culture. But there, there's, a, there's a, something in that comparison. So they do this with the Etruscans. They take on Etruscan religion. Uh, they, take on, they have Etruscan soothsayers for the rest of their history. Uh, there's a great scene or a great book of Virgil's Aeneid that describes kind of this cultural appropriation between all the different Sabine and, and Latin tribes and right. all that. Precisely. And the same thing is certainly going to be true of Greek culture. Uh, and uh, when they, when they encounter the Greeks, this is, this is a great, great testing period for Rome. And many would say that uh, what happens is they, they import so much of Greek culture so fast. It does start to undermine the societal 
cohesiveness, that public life of the spirit that had bound the Roman Republic together. I think you can make that argument. I don't know if that is necessarily what accelerates uh, the decline into the end of the, the second century, but it certainly plays a, a very complex role. And Romans themselves are divided as to how much they should be uh, studying Greek literature and should they be making the Roman gods look more like the Greek gods. Roman gods are boring. Greek gods are really exciting on all the myths about them. Uh, they they want to sort of apply them to Roman gods, and it's complicated. And that gets to that that question that we'd referenced a while ago about like when your culture, your political culture, your society starts to shift, and what defines you as a as a people starts to erode then you've got these tensions that emerge. And I think that's part of what happens as a consequence of Rome's success. Their empire becomes so large. First of all, they have to figure out how to manage that constitutionally. They're pretty good, but not perfect. And those imperfections are going to have some consequences. But their culture is also taking in a lot of new things really fast. They're also bringing in lots of slaves. And that's problematic for a number of reasons as well. And you're going to have slave revolts that are breaking out by the end of the second century and then into the first century. So it's those giant conquests that start to change the nature of what it means to be Roman. That adoption, adaptation, it's a plus, but it can also bring with it some negative consequences. That's interesting. It's the uh, uh, your, your own uh, victim of your own success, I suppose. Sure. Yes, and I, I think this is true of of, of many cultures, and it, it certainly could said could be said to be true of the Roman Republic. That's great. Uh, well, thank you very much. Uh, I'm going to stop in a second, and we can wrap for just one moment before I let you go. Uh, Killing for the Republic, Steel Brand. Go get it everywhere. I really <sighs> highly recommend it. Uh, the audiobook uh, was is really good. That's what I've been reading as well. Uh, I've been really enjoying it, especially the pronunciation of words that I it's it's feel like I'm shifting my vocabulary a little bit. So I appreciate that too. Um, anything else that you want to add before I, I cut the recording? No, thanks so much for having me on the show. It's been really enjoyable, and I appreciate you thinking of me. <laughs> Thank you very much.